If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. You know, there are many views that people have whether the Lord is coming soon or coming not. But what I know in my own heart is I do know the Lord is coming. And what I do know very well is he's put an urgency on my heart. And what I mean by that is that when I'm reading the word, God is speaking in a way that I haven't heard in a long time. And he's calling my attention to just preach the word. And his, the power of his spirit. Because the world is oblivious, much like the, the days of Noah, if you remember. The world is going on. Yes, there's fearful people. Within the church, there are many that I want to call your attention to, that are going different directions. I've seen pastors just really shift. Pastors that have walked away from the Lord. Pastors that have doubted. The reason I say that is I want to call your attention to an evangelist many years ago named Templeton. And, and then one day he walked away from the Lord and he never came back. He wrote a book, a book on saying that he's agnostic and why he doesn't believe in God. And people would look at him and amazed, you've led so many people to the Lord, but how could you walk away? And I want to encourage you today to examine your own heart because that capacity is in each and every one of us. We can have a head knowledge, but not a heart knowledge. And really, that's what our text is going to be about the next two weeks. It's really one big message in this from, again, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. I titled the message, Skeletons in the Desert. That's the example that we're going to see. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to see that we're called again, to strive to enter into his rest. Meaning we, we need to work at resting in God and let our hands off this life. And simply trust God. See, without faith, it's impossible to please him. And he who comes to him must believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus said at his second coming, and this is important to understand, will he find faith? Rhetorical question. We'll talk about that in a little while. Faith that really rests in trust in him. The Hebrews believed in their mind that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, but they weren't willing to connect it with their heart. And this was an exhortation to the Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians at that time. They weren't willing to commit themselves completely to God. And my exhortation to you today 
is to examine your heart. Have you completely committed yourself to God and God alone? Or are you living for yourself? Many Christians are living still for themselves and not for God, and they will suffer consequences for those choices. A difficult message? Yes, it's a very hard message because many of the, the, the things were the same that I looked at when I was teaching on my Thursday night message, blessed are the pure, for they will see God. Or happy are the pure, for they, and they alone will see God. There are many that call upon the name of the Lord, will not see God. The Bible warns, be not deceived, be not deceived. And again, we're, we're coming back to an area much like that. They're drawn away and their fears of persecution and everything. And we've been talking about that. And, and simply the book has been saying that, you know, Jesus is greater than everything. Everyone, the angels. We'll go on to the sacrificial system. But he pauses with this urgency of this message. Every Jewish person would have known the passage that is quoted here in the, in the book of Hebrews because it's, it's a verse that would have been quoted on their Shabbat meetings as they gathered together. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. The, the seriousness of this command is what we're going to look at. But notice what he says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of the trial of the wilderness. The urgency and the warning is not just for the people that day, while its main context is, but the church is in that same place that they were. Will they really commit and trust themselves completely to God, or will they fall apart? Will they strive on their own power? Will they take things into their hands? That's really the message. So Father, we pray for the ears to hear. We pray for the heart to follow you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, that you would Speak your words through me, and may they not be my words. May they hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, I don't do altar calls a lot because oftentimes I know the people. And there's times that God will lead it, and I'll do an altar call, maybe a time of prayer. I'm always available for prayer. And no one came. And this is the same kind of message. Will you hear? Would they hear? We can't pick and choose the verses that we want to hang on to. Oh, certainly there's life verses. There's verses that will encourage you and me. But either we take the whole Bible, everything he says, or you better take nothing at all because you're wasting your time. This message is not just for you, you're here, but for the many that listen on the internet as well. 
The message is for the church because it's in the Bible. It's the word of God. It's God speaking to his people. We talked about it again in Acts chapter 28 where they heard, but they become dull in hearing. Eventually they quit listening and that's what's happening to this church here. They've already predetermined what they're going to believe and how they're going to act. The Holy Spirit is crying out to them. An urgency. And I think this is one of the reasons why we don't know who the author is. Don't say it's Paul. Don't say it's Apollos. Don't go on all the names. It is the Holy Spirit. that wants to get our attention today, tomorrow. There's an urgency. Let go of our pettiness because the Lord is coming. And if we do not focus on the real reason that we're called to be here, we have missed the mark and we may even deceive ourselves. We see again in Hebrews 3 and 7, it, he begins with that word therefore, going back to what he's already spoken. Tying that passage last week to this message this week, and even, again, the message next week. And there's three things that he's going to call our attention to in the beginning here. And the things that I want to call your attention to is look in your Bible, look in the text, and if you don't, it'll be on the screen Verse 7 of Hebrews 3. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, notice the author, the Holy Spirit, today. You got a Bible? Underline it. Today. There's an urgency. Today. Jump down in your text to verse 13. You also see that word. Again, as long as it's called today, so that no one will harden their heart as the deceitfulness of sin. And jump in your text down to verse 15. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's when they provoked me. And this simply reminds us of that urgency. And for me just to teach it and not really point out that urgency, I've missed the mark. This is an urgent message that the body of Christ needs to hear. You need to hear it. I need to hear it. And we need to communicate these verses. We need to be able to open these verses with someone else that we love and someone else we care about. But so often we find ourselves possibly wasting our life. Anyone guilty of that? Don't even hold your hands up. Waste our life on foolish things. At times, we, we, we wallow in the failures of our life, yesterday's failures. It's done. It's gone. But today is the day. Today is the day that we need to act according to his will. But if you're dreaming for it, if, if that is your main focus, that's what I'm saying here. When we're doing those kind of things, and you can fill in the blanks on whatever you want, and you understand the things that you've wasted your time on, you've wasted the moment. Every one of us 
have wasted the moment. It's just slipped through our fingers because we didn't act upon that moment. And sometimes for years, people stay focused upon that. John Greenleaf, Witter, a Quaker poet and pastor, said these words, for all the sad words of the tongue and the pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. Sometimes we said, I wonder if it's gone. Like water running down a brook. Your hand is there, it's gone. You'll never touch that same water again. There's never another opportunity. You've just missed it. This is why he's talking about the urgency today, if you hear his voice. And my prayer is that you will hear God's voice, not just today, but every day until he comes to take us, and then we'll really hang upon his voice when we're in heaven with him. Isaiah 55, 6 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Today, your friends need to hear about Jesus. All you can do is, is bring the seed, another one water it. You're not responsible, but you are responsible to bring that word. It may be the only time that you get a chance to share. It doesn't mean we cram it down their throat. We try and push it upon them every time. We're, we're looking for an opening. In fact, if we do that, we're only pushing them away. And they will not hear. They have to want to hear. And when we see that moment, that time, that's when we do that. Well, let's focus on the obligation. It's there in those first verses. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, an important command if you stop and think about it. Many people say, well, I don't really hear the voice of God. I've never heard God say, Ron, Ron, like Abraham, Abraham. But I've heard him speak to my heart. You think of little Samuel, a young man, maybe five, six years old. The Lord calls out, and he runs to Eli. I'm here. He didn't know how to recognize the voice of God. He needed to be instructed by someone else. We need to learn to listen. We need to come alongside one and help them listen for the voice of God. People need to discern what is the voice of God and what is the voice of man and of the world and the world's wisdom. Because within the body of Christ, most pastors agree, the body of Christ lacks discernment because they act in the flesh and they act in the wisdom of the world instead of the wisdom of God. If you hear his voice, you need to act upon it. Whatever he is saying to you, it, you need to recognize it, learn to listen to him. You need to be quick to listen, quick to hear. Come with anticipation, come with expectation. Sadly, a man is listening to man instead of to God. I pray that when you hear me speak, you're looking to see if it's so 
if it's true, and you don't depend upon my words, you, you, you see it in the word. If you really want to know the truth, you hear it and you look at it, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. But so often, we're following man. Every one of us here are guilty of that in some way. Especially if you're in America. Our heroes are men. Not just movie stars, musicians. Sometimes politicians even. What does the Bible say and what is the author's intent? And this is the problem. They weren't listening. Solomon said, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. See, they heard, they knew in their mind, but they were hardening their heart. See, there was a, a failure really to hear God, to heed God's word. Every time a person hears God and they choose to do what they want, they're hardening their heart. And a person can go so far, there's no way back. Sometimes what they do is they have so much invested, invested, I should say, in their agenda. This is what he's talking about there. And this is true of the body of Christ, the world. Not just this church, every church. Why? Because people are people. And that's what we need to be aware of. Are we a child of God? If we are a child of God, we need to act as a child of God. You cannot call yourself a child of God if you're still walking in darkness, if you're still functioning in the flesh. Paul talked about it when he wrote the Corinthians. They were carnal. He, he still had to give them milk. He couldn't give them bread or meat. They never moved forward. When we get to chapter 5, we're going to see more the problems that were in Hebrews. You can't lose salvation, but you can walk away from salvation and never receive it. You can believe in your mind, but not be converted in your heart. This is what he's dealing with in this passage here. And when a person fails to hear God and fails to heed what God is saying, his heart is hardened, and there are severe consequences for not heeding what God is saying. The devil puts it in her mind. Did God really say that? Have you ever had that come to your mind when you're hearing something? I have. Satan's always bombarding me with all these different things. Did God really say that? And you can't recognize it by the voice and the tone, the fluctuations. No. You know what the Word of God says. That's your plot line. Look with me, three more verses I want to call your attention to. In Exodus 7, verse 22, beginning. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, and the Lord had said. Now, here's the thing. The miracles are being done. We know the plagues that had come. They could counterfeit many of those plagues that were going on. But they're going to recognize this is the hand of God. Look with me. Chapter 8, verse 19 on the screen. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They're saying, we can't do this. This is supernatural. This is God. And he goes on. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not listen to them. 
as the Lord had said. Next it is 14. As for me, behold, I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so they will go after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army and through his chariots and horsemen. And God's saying, look, they have chosen not to believe. They've hardened their hearts. I, I now harden their hearts. I'm going to honor what they believe. But I'm going to use all of this to reveal who I am to Egypt and to the world. And you have the story from there. People hear the word of God and they shut their mind to God. They hear it clearly. They read it. You can go back to them and, and say, well, would you read that in its context? What does it say? And they tell you something else. And would you read it again? And read it again. And read it again. And they still say what they want to say because they've already decided what they want to believe. This is the people that he's speaking to. And this capacity is in each and every one of us here. This is why he warned, do not deceive yourselves. That is scary words when I read that. Lord, am I deceiving myself? He's not pointing fingers at anybody else. It's right here. And it's right there with you when you read it, when you see it. Do not recognize that capacity is in you. You're in deep trouble. To think that you'll never walk away from God. It's true, the true believer is kept by the power of God, but not everyone who professes to be a believer are believers and they've deceived themselves. They can say the right words. They can sing the right songs. They can minister in many different ways. But do they know him? That's really what God wants. Do you know him personally? Do you know that he's there holding you up, sustaining you, keeping you, that he'll provide every single one of your needs, that you can go through this life no matter what is going on with peace? Well, I'm not saying the world doesn't bring all kinds of troubles, but ultimately you know that God's on the throne. And you can put those things, push those things away. When God speaks, please, I'm begging you, listen and heed what he says. Not the words of a man, the words of God. This is the danger that this church was facing, hanging on to their traditions, their ideas, their agendas. God was doing a new work and they didn't like it. There were new opportunities that had never been before, and they were to seize it, and they missed that opportunity. We're going to see an example of that in a moment. Well, look with me again in verse 8. We now look at the scriptural confirmation. Is when they provoked me, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and notice it says, and saw my works for 40 years. They saw the hand of God. They saw the finger of God. There's not a question, this is God. And they would grumble, and they would murmur, and they would grumble, and they murmur. But God was faithful to them, but they ended up dying in the wilderness. Because they really wouldn't believe. Oh, no, they believed. Yes, they believed. 
but they have not believed completely with their heart. And see, that's the sad picture. See, now this day of the trial is not a single day. It speaks of a period of time over the, the 40 years. It's like the day of the Lord is a, a period of time. It's not an individual day. So he's talking about this trial, this, this testing, this period of time. And what we're going to see here, the focus is Israel's recurring rebellion and unbelief in the wilderness. You know where that rebellious spirit comes from? Our natural heart. Our hearts are wickedly deceitful above all things who could know it. Do not deceive yourself. See, God instructed the people to enter in. Claim the, the promised land. I, I'm going to give this to you. It's a land of milk and honey. But however, due to their unbelief, they simply didn't take God at his word and possess the land. There are people today that are worried about the church falling apart. Do I need to worry about the church falling apart? Jesus said that he will build the church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Do I need to worry? If I am trusting him, there is no need to worry. If I'm trying to keep the church together, what am I doing? I'm striving on my own power. I want to follow him. And, and that's the picture that we need to, to look at. And it was their unbelief. They didn't experience. See, instead of believing, what they did is they sent the spies into the land. We'll just see if God really knows what he's talking about. That's really what they were saying. Uh, we, we believe. We'll send the spies. And the spies come back, oh, it's just like what, what God said. It's a, a land of milk and honey, but, but there's giants in the land. We, we, we can't deal with the giants. Did they really believe? No. They believed in their mind, but not in their heart, because they didn't ever enter into that rest. And that generation, for 40 years, they walked in the wilderness. What should have been an 11-day journey into the, the land, God led them through the wilderness because of rebellion, and again and again they rebel, again and again they did it on their own power, striving on their own, until every one of them dropped dead in the desert. And they never entered into his rest. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. And the time of the rebellion is the example. Spies came back, said the land's just as God said. Grace was laid before them, but they would not receive it. They would not rest in it. They would not trust in it. And they missed not just a moment. They missed the mark totally. Look with me in Numbers chapter 13, verses 31 through 33 on the screen. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against these people. They're too strong for us. So they gave out the sons of Israel a bad report on the land. 
which he had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone in, it's spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people who we saw. And they're men of giant size. They're also, we saw Nephilim, the sons of Anak, a part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in their own sight. When the giants were in the land, that's true. In Hebron, Gath, we know. Hashdod, or Ashdod and Gaza. In fact, in archaeology, they have found in Ashdod, I believe it's outside Ashdod, a, a, a person that was 33 feet tall. That doesn't make sense. There were giants. But is anything too difficult for God? No matter how big it looks, no matter how severe it is, God is still on the throne. If you believe him, nothing is too difficult for him. The things that are impossible for you and me are possible for God. And the person that, that knows that, believes that, rested, he doesn't strive anymore. See, this whole point is that he's going to lead us to next week is that we need to rest in God. It's not in a day. It's in the person of Christ. He's in control. He's on the throne. He's coming again. The battles are his, not ours. We need to walk as Jesus walked in this earth. That's why the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes are so important. This is what God wants to do in our lives. To walk as he walked. Sadly, the Israelites missed out on God's best because of their unbelief. They had more fear of their enemy than faith in their God. See, that's what it boils down to. We, we fear consequences. We fear the enemy more than we do faith and a faithful God who's able to keep you until that day who's willing and able. And he loves you with an everlasting love. Luke 18, 8 says this. The tail end, at it, end of it says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I mentioned earlier, it's rhetorical. No. Not faith, that rest completely. You can go back and look at the study, the context of the passage, like what was demonstrated there. What kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith do I have? These are questions I have to ask myself. What kind of faith is it? Is it a faith that moves mountains? Is it a faith that rests and trusts completely in God? Is it a faith that, that seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness before all things, knowing that he'll take care of everything else? I'm, I'm glad. I'm tired. I don't want to have to take care of everything. Do you? If you're a husband, if you're a wife, a grandma, grandpa. Man, I'm looking for heaven. There have been many lessons I've learned, and there's many more I still need to learn, and that's true for you as well that will bring us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oliver B. Green, commenting on this thought here, 
Unbelief is a sin most insulting to God. Yes, God has a remnant. Not a question about it. But there's this sin of unbelief. To say, God, I don't believe you. Maybe we don't say it with our actions, but we do. I should say, we don't say that in our words, but we could say that in our actions. When we got to control things. Now, all of us like to be in control of matters, don't we? Jesus is the one supposed to be in control. He's the one that we're following. That's our plumb line. And what he's talking about is a serious doubting of God. Now, Hebrews 11:6, I mentioned, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That he's going to reward you. Whatever it is that you need, he's going to give you. But just trusting in him, resting in him. I'm tired of striving on my own. I want to rest in Jesus. But I am content, and I want to enjoy the time with God each and every day. And this is where he wants you to do, no matter what you're going through, physically, emotionally, spiritually, he wants you just to enjoy him. If you're not enjoying really him, you may not even know him. It's knowing him. That's what he desires, not the works. Well, did you notice the displeasure of God? It's there in verse 10. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. And said, they're always going astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. Let me focus on the end of that. They did not know my ways. That was his grace. He was gracious to them. He was merciful to them. They they didn't focus upon him. It always looked greener the other side of the hill. And it's important when we think about it, he was angry with that generation. It's from this passage in the Old Testament that's quoted here, how we come up with this idea that a generation is 40 years. And that's not always true. See, we should never forget how God responds to unbelief. Every believer is confronted with unbelief in his life. I, I've been confronted, the devil has confronted me. If, if you want to blame it on the devil, am I really a Christian? Yes, it's something that comes with it, but, but what he's talking about are people, again, who always went astray in their hearts. Don't miss the reference to the anger of God. Unbelief. Unbelief is, is, is focused upon in that physical way, that practical way of just not trusting in him, not resting in him. It was met in anger. Continually there was something else, something else, looking for over here. We don't have enough meat. We don't have enough water. We don't have this. We don't have... We joke about it. We're a grumbler. Grumbling is not something we should ever want to admit in our lives. Other than maybe to God, God, I am a grumbler. I've murmured in the wilderness just like the children of Israel. 
forgive me and give me a new heart. Convict me when I begin to go down that path. We shouldn't miss that reference to the anger. The Bible is very clear that God is not passive. He's or indifferent to the face of human sin. In fact, he's an all-consuming God. Inevitable. The reaction to sin is always wrath. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. All a person has to do is turn and confess. Now in Psalm 78, look with me in verses 40 and 41. How often they rebelled against him in the, rebel, uh, in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. And again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. I must confess, there's been times in my life I've been guilty of something much like this. But as you grow in the faith, you're resting and trusting in Jesus Christ. That's where he wants to bring us. People again and again and again, and they're not learning. This is why he says, they didn't even know me. They didn't know my ways. They continue to do what they, they've done for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. They're Christians. They're no different than they were when they were converted, maybe when they're 20 in their mind, and they're still at 60 years old, 70 years old, the same way. These were all professing believers here. And that's why in verse 11, I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. No, no matter how many times they confess, they really, there, there was a confession, but there was no repentance. There was no change. There was no resting and trusting. There was no really broken and contrite heart. It was only a concern about what they were going through and what they would experience next. All that you go through, I go through, you know what it is, is to bring me close to God. That I would know his grace and his mercy is available. All I need to do is call out to him. We see in this passage the, really the, the great depth of, again, of God's grief and displeasure. Remember in Ezekiel, God finds no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. He hates it as much as you do. But because he's a holy God, he must judge unbelief. Now, there are those that confess belief, but they really have unbelief. You can say what you want, but how do you live your life? Is it a life that really glorifies God? That brings glory to Him, that edifies, encourages, builds up? Or is it a life that divides, brings strife, anger, bitterness, fear? That's what was happening to the children. I'm thankful that God is a God of love, but he is a God of wrath. And because he's a holy God, he must judge sin in the context of this passage, unbelief. Deuteronomy 4.24 says this, The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's jealous for you. 
He knows if you do not follow in his footsteps, if you take things in your own hand, you will suffer the consequences. You know that with your own children. Jesus is the only way, one way. And that's what we trust in in Deuteronomy 9.3. Notice what it says. Now, therefore, today, that is as the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. The Lord is the one that fights the battles are the Lord's. And that's what we need to remember. God is still on the throne. He's leading. He's in control. We need to stop and think a moment. The confrontation between Elijah, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Another example of a a, a consuming fire. God, an all-consuming fire. The prophets of Baal were cutting themselves, slashing themselves. They, they had set up this altar and they're crying out to Baal all day long. Sincere. But sincerely wrong. Elijah prepare, prepares the offering. He speaks to God. Oh, he, Stop and think about it. He speaks to God. Sometimes we have to think we have to yell at God for God to hear. God hears us. He knows the thoughts before we even speak them. He speaks to God or prays to God. The fire comes down and consumes it. This all-consuming fire is a picture of God. He must consume what is unholy, what is evil, and that boils down to the unbelief of the believer in the context of the passage. 2 Timothy 2.13, notice what it says. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So often I heard people quote this passage and say, you know, well, I, I, I blew it, but, you know, well, we're faithless, but he remains faithful. What does that mean? It means if a person walks in unbelief, he's still faithful to his very nature. And he will judge sin. He will judge unbelief. If we do it on our own power instead of in the spirit of the Lord, there's consequences. That's what he's saying. We often twist the scriptures to use it for what we want instead of understanding what God is saying. Look at Hebrews on the screen, 1031. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. I don't wish that on anyone. On anyone. But there's the fact of those that are in unbelief. And, and that brings us back to this point of urgency. There are many that do not know him, and we've got to get that word out. It's important. God had a remnant, though, if you stop and think about it. He always has a remnant. Now, let's look at verse 16 just for a moment. It says, For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt 
led by Moses, and, and he's talking about that death of the, the sinner, that one in unbelief, but what I want to call your attention to is, yes, God is a, a God of love, but he's a God of wrath. He will judge that unbelief as he did there. But what I want to call your attention to, God always has a remnant. There was Joshua. There was Caleb that went in and, and they trusted and believed God and they experienced everything that God had for them. That's my prayer for you, that you will not miss one thing that God has for you. We could get a little selfish, say, and maybe he'd give you some more. We want everything that God has, and then some. There's nothing wrong with that. But may we be faithful to what he's put on our plate each and every day. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 34, Then the Lord heard the sound of the words, and he was angry, and he took an oath, saying, Not one of these, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except for Caleb and, and Joshua. I'm going to stop there. Verse 37, And the Lord was angry with them. And this is important to understand. Now, Joshua never entered the promised land. Moses never entered the promised land because of a little unbelief, but it wasn't continual, it wasn't habitual. That's the difference that he's talking about. God disciplined them. They saw the land, Moses did, but never entered in. Now, how does that apply to you and me? We, we can be people of faith, but because of unbelief. We can miss what God has for us right now. Now, the main context of this passage is, is, is going to talk about, again, that there are those that simply didn't enter in. This is the example. There are those that will believe in God, and they will enter in, and they will experience God's wrath. In fact, look with me in verse 17 for a moment. And with whom was I angry for 40 years? Was it not those who had sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that he would not enter into the rest? But those who are disobedient. And, and that's what unbelief is. Simply taking God at his word. The literal, ordinary, common sense of the passage. When we twist the scripture, God's going to deal with that. When we use it to our own advantage, God will deal with that. Well, again, the, the fact of unbelief is clearly stated. Verse 19. So we see that we were not able to enter because of our unbelief. Now, the promised land, there's hymns, and they go a little too far. The promised land is not heaven. No. We're going to heaven. That's a separate thing. But God had made unique, special promises to Israel, and God will fulfill that in its proper time. But those who are in unbelief will never experience it. They simply did not believe God, despite his faithfulness in delivering them out of Egypt, bringing them to the border of Canaan. They would not believe God and go into the Canaan simply because they're unbelief. Look with me in Hebrews 3.12 again. Take care, or if you're in the King James, take heed. I like that better myself. Brethren, meaning he's speaking to brethren, that there not be any of you of an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And he's saying, look, there are people here 
He's warning them. The urgency. In verse 18, again, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter in because of unbelief. No day can give you rest. A person gives you rest. That is Jesus Christ. He is our rest. Note the judgment. Their carcasses fell in the the wilderness. It's interesting because this is considered the sin that leads unto death. It's always confusion. What does this passage mean? The, The sin unto death. Look with me in 1 John 5, 16 and 17. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God and he will give him life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make a request of that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. So what is this sin? It's the sin of apostasy. It's a a sin of knowing who God is in our minds only, and nothing has ever happened in our hearts. We do not follow him in belief. They remain in unbelief. These is a picture of those, the children of Israel, that died in the wilderness. And that's a picture of many within the body of Christ. This is why that there's so many people, pastors I know, evangelists I know, they believe there's maybe 25% of the body of Christ is really saved. Many have just said sinner's prayers, and a sinner's prayer will not save a person. It's a belief that rests and trust in Jesus Christ, and it's a testimony to the world. Here's a person who's following Christ with all their heart, mind, and soul, and strength. They're people that are walking humbly through this life. They're kind, they're meek. Based upon the context in both Hebrews and 1 John, there's a sin leading to the death. It's apostasy. Apostate is one that heard the truths of the faith, but has walked away. Intellectually, he understands it. He understands who Jesus Christ is. There's not a question in his mind. Made the profession of of Christianity, but is never truly saved. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3 through 6. Notice what it says. And this will do if God permits. For in the case of those who had once been enlightened, had tasted the heavenly gift, and had been made partners in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good work of God and the powers of the age to come, and have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. Now we'll develop this more later, but what it's saying is it's talking about those that walked by. They, they were Again, they were in a fellowship. They had the knowledge of it. They, they experienced what God was doing, the miraculous. They tasted of it. But walked away. I've known people like that. 20-some years, walked away from the Lord. The sin unto death It's a physical death of a professing believer who refuses to repent and suffers the chastening hand of God. This is who he's speaking to. Solomon said this, that being often reproved and hardened his neck and suddenly shall be destroyed and that without remedy. 
We have several Bible examples of those who committed a sin to death. As I mentioned, Moses and Aaron, and again, it wasn't a sin unto death, but God did discipline them. But you have Nadab and Abihu, a sin unto death. Korah wanted to be the worship leader, wanted to lead the people, the priest. It ends up falling in a hole and taking everybody in. Achan, who led his whole family, were killed because of his selfish greed. Wasn't obedient to God's word. And we're not talking one time. We're talking a, a lifestyle. That's why he said they continually did this for 40 years. I sin every day, unfortunately, and you do too. Notice what it says in verse 12 again. Take care, or again, the King James says, take heed. I like that. Heed, it means I've got to wake up. I need to respond. And he speaks to the brethren that there not be any one of you, again, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So here's this capacity in them. The author continues to warn us concerning this unbelief. Sternly warns about an evil heart of unbelief and simply departing from the living God. Again in verse 12, notice the cause of unbelief. It's an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. They don't need God, they don't hear God, they don't want God. They'll want God only on their terms. You don't come to God on your terms. Many fashion their own God. My God is this way. God has chosen in the Bible to reveal himself, his character, his nature, what pleases him, and what he despises, and unbelief is one of them. Our heart is often our greatest enemy. Jeremiah made it very clear. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who could know it? Solomon said the backslider in the heart shall be filled with his own ways. He's going to suffer the consequences. Have you ever noticed a person who wanders away from the Lord? He, he always reaps the consequences. The reason I say it is because we should be praying. We should be reaching out. We should be encouraging. We need to be constantly checking ourselves and how we look at God and how we look at others. Verse 12 again, the course of unbelief, the unbelieving heart that falls away from God. It, it, it changes course like a, like a ship. They're moving in one direction and they move away. There's consequences. You cannot walk with the Lord unless you're in agreement. God, you are God and I'm going to follow you. Your terms, not my terms. You can have two people, if they don't agree, they're going different ways. And that's so often the person unbelief, they walk a different way. They're not willing to accept what God says. 